Good morning, church. It's good to see you today. Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new or visiting with us here at Dawson, we are journeying through the gospel of Mark. We come now to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yesterday at about five o'clock, it was a dreary day, and many people have faced uh, tremendous uh, challenges with the latest hurricane that has come and this sort of barrage of hurricanes that have come on uh, Louisiana in the last six weeks. And Alabama Gulf Coast and Mississippi Gulf Coast. But for us in the Birmingham metro area, it largely meant some flag football games that got canceled and a just endless lunge, uh, deluge of, of rain. And about five o'clock, I was going to get dinner for our family. And at about five, as I was driving, I noticed these double rainbows. Dean Thornton, one of our members of our church, actually got this picture here. Dean, thanks for the picture here. So, and it was just a beautiful sight. Now, one of the things that was just so remarkable to me as I was driving, I was seeing this rainbow, was the number of people that had come out of their homes and were taking pictures of, of this just beautiful reminder of God's presence and his providence. The number of cars, I mean, literally cars. I, was, I did not know what was going on. I didn't see the rainbow before I saw people that were just pulled over, doors open outside, with their cell phones, uh, flipping this picture here, capturing this picture here. And again, it's just a reminder to us all that God is on his throne and God's protection, presence, and providence has not changed, even in the midst of difficulties and even in the midst of the, the storms of life that have been experienced by maybe even many of you that are here. Mark chapter 15 gives us a symbol as the rainbow is a symbol of God's presence with us, there is another symbol that I want us to hold on to this morning. And it is the central symbol of our faith. It's the symbol of an empty cross. I read a story just recently of a cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas, that in 1930s, uh, 1930, a Catholic priest erected a bronze crucifix that met you as you entered into the cemetery. In 1930, this crucifix was valued at $10,000. A few years back, some thieves broke into that cemetery, and they cut the cross off at its base. They loaded it up on the back of a truck, and they really just cut it up and went into the open market selling scraps. Police, as they caught them, they, they saw that they took this cross whose value was tens of thousands of dollars and sold it at most on the open market for about $400. What a waste in every way. But the thieves didn't realize the value of what they had stolen. They didn't realize the intrinsic value of this cross, nor did the purchasers, if they did recognize the value, they didn't give uh, a sign that they did. And so here you have these people that are holding this what is a valuable bronze crucifix that they do not recognize the intrinsic worth of. And it's a reminder, isn't it, as we look at Mark's gospel, that you have those who would crucify Jesus who did not recognize the priceless ministry of our Savior. That they did not recognize the intrinsic value of what was occurring. This was a crucifixion like any other crucifixion for hundreds of people that were onlookers of Jesus' crucifixion that day. But what you know, what I know, 
is the incalculable value of what occurs in the words that we read of in Mark chapter 15. I hope, I pray, that there is no one here today that would be so blind to the worth of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection for you, for me. I want us to see two truths of the cross today. I want us to see the mockery of the cross, and I want us to to gaze upon the message of the cross. Let's begin with the mockery of the cross in verse 16 of Mark chapter 15. We read, and the soldiers led him, Jesus, away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And they mocked him. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. When they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour. When they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We feel the mockery of the cross taunts, the revulsion, the barrage of blows that come one after another. You can't catch your breath in the account that Mark gives us. The Roman soldiers, they, they uh, enact this cruel, sadistic mock coronation of the king of the Jews. They robe him with a purple robe, verse 17 tells us. That first century world, purple comes from an ancient dye that would have symbolized royalty. It was fit only for a king here. They place it upon him to mock him, to deride him. They give him not a crown that is fitting for a true king, but they have this plant that they twist together that would have been known in that first century Palestinian world, and it had these spikes of thorns that they placed upon his brow, and as they laid the crown upon him and fit it upon him, it it just, blood began to flow even more. Verse 18, 
in mocking derision. They, they say, hell, king of the Jews. There's a spectacle. But as we see this sort of uh, coronation, this mock coronation, immediately we see an anti-coronation, a sort of a reversal. Because what they do is they have him as this spectacle. They begin to spit upon him. They kneel before him. They take reeds. It, it would have looked as close as you could get to a king's scepter. But they, they give it not to him as a king. But they beat him across his head again and again and again with each blow the crown going further and further into his brow they're relentless they strip him of his robe he's unclothed in this moment they cover him real quickly with his battered tattered clothing as they rip the skin off of his back as they flogged him the entire scene is cruel it's unrelenting they force him to carry his own cross, but you get that he couldn't do it. In that world, a, a part of the inhumane aspect of crucifixion was is that the victim of crucifixion had to take the instrument of their death upon their back, and they would have to carry it to the place where they were crucified. Now, the soldiers realized that they cannot cajole Jesus. They can't beat him any further to get him up to carry his cross. He is physically unable to do this. Maybe it's the blood loss. His body broken. They commandeer a passerby. Simon of Serene. It's interesting, Serene is, is a north coast of Libya. Simon is an African who happens to be passing through Jerusalem at this time and in this moment he is commandeered to be able to carry the cross of this this victim who he hears is Jesus you notice the details of what Mark tells us he tells us not about Simon as much as he tells us this interesting detail about Simon's two children he is the father Mark says of Alexander and Rufus we forget this often when we're reading through the Gospels, but the Gospels are written, they're written decades after the historical events that he's describing. Mark is most likely writing to the church at Rome, so we begin to understand why this detail might have been significant, because they didn't know who Simon was, but they knew Rufus. How do we know that? You come to the end of Romans, you come to the 16th chapter and Paul is saying hey greet this person greet that person greet this person tell this person hello in the Lord and then we get to verse 13 and we read greet Rufus chosen in the Lord also his mother who has been a mother to me as well Rufus is most likely most scholars believe the the very son of Simon who carries the cross of Jesus we don't know this but you could imagine that Simon takes up the cross of Christ Jesus and a little child Rufus teenage Rufus college student Rufus is looking at his dad and it's in that moment that he realizes this this Jesus is not just a criminal the seeds of his own salvation may be planted in his father taking up Jesus' cross. As we read the story, it doesn't let up. Simon carries the cross to the outside city limits of Jerusalem to a place called 
the place of the skull, Golgotha, is an act of compassion. Tradition tells us that they were, there was a group of women in Jerusalem that their one task was to go to crucifixions and to have this sort of primitive uh, narcotic that would deaden the sense of the victims of the crucifixion. So they have a wine mixed with myrrh. They offer it to Jesus as an act of compassion. He absolutely refuses it. Why? Why does Jesus refuse this? Well, his final act of obedience, he will be completely lucid at. His final act of obedience would be, he would would embrace in a fully conscious state. We read in verse 24, sort of the understatement of the crucifixion, four words, and they crucified him. The greatest act of love for you and for me, for all of humanity, is is described in sort of almost a throwaway line, the straightforward way, as a matter of fact. Mark goes into more detail about dividing up Jesus' garments, casting lots, the taunts, they still come, even as he is upon the cross. It's unrelenting. We hear the taunts from the robbers where Jesus is crucified, one to his right, one to his left. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. The chief priests, the scribes, they haven't got enough, so we read in verse 31, he saved others. But he can't save himself. The mocking, the jeering. Why why does Mark spend so much time giving us this this cruel picture of the mockery of the cross. In that first century world, can you believe this? The crucifixion was really a source of entertainment for Roman citizens. And so a part of crucifixion, a part of the spectacle of crucifixion, wasn't that, that the mocking and the jeering was tampered down, but it was encouraged. Because one of the things that crucifixion was, was to do and to show was that anyone that violated Rome, this is what would occur to you. You would lose your life, but more than that, your soul would be exterminated. Your dignity would be blotted out. So it isn't enough to just physically kill the victim of crucifixion. It is to stomp out the emotional essence of a person. So the taunts, the mocks, they were not, uh, they were not extraneous to crucifixion. They were a part of the very language of crucifixion in this moment here. Henry Nowen is a famous writer. He's a minister of the gospel, and he, and he tells a horrific story. It gives us insight into the cross. It it tells a story of a local physician in a small town in Paraguay. It was in the midst of about a 35-year run of the dictator, General Strausser. Tremendous human rights violations were occurring all across Paraguay and into their village. This local physician stood up, opposed the, the regime publicly, and so to blot out his voice, They arrested his son. They took him back into a prison. They would not allow his family to see him. And they cruelly and slowly tortured the son. They killed his son. The villagers 
for a pole. I mean, everybody knew this family. It was a leading family in their small village. And, and so they said, here's the time. Take up arms. Lead us. You will be the last one that this ever happens. And the dad said, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm going to do. They had a funeral for his son. And the dad chose this way to protest. The dad took his son's beaten, battered body as he found it in a jail cell, unclothed and scarred from the electrical shocks that he endured, the cigarette burns that sadistically punished him, the beatings that he experienced, and he took his son's body and he allowed villagers to file past the corpse of his son. It wasn't laid to rest in a coffin, no, it was on a blood-soaked mattress that they found in prison. And what he did in that moment was to say, the strongest protest that I can show is the injustice the sadistic nature of this grotesque display, this is what happens. We have an eternal Father who in this moment, in this moment, allows the worst of humanity to be on display and his son to be the recipient of it. The taunts, the beatings, the eternal Father allows his son to endure it so when we can understand what Jesus went through and what's at the depth of our own heart? These are humans like us that commit this violence. Humans like us that commit this injustice. At once the cross reveals the utter pain of humanity. The utter injustice of the world. But note this. What kept Jesus on the cross wasn't the nails. What kept Jesus on the cross wasn't the sadistic nature of crucifixion in the first century world. What kept Jesus on the cross was the very message of the cross. Notice with me in verse 33. We read, and when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man, truly this man was the Son of God. For about 15 years, I've kept this Evernote file. I'll read a biography. I'll hear something on the radio that sort of recounts the, the last moments of a person's life. And there's just something about it, at least the way these stories sort of get passed down kind of reveal much of a person's character and what they're thinking in the midst of, of, of the life to come before them. Babe Ruth, the great Bambino, the great New York Yankees, left-handed power hitter, at least it's reported that he said, I'm going over the valley. Joy D. Eisenhower, at least it's reported, he said in his last words, I want to go, God take me. 
Winston Churchill, as he exited this life, he, he did it with these final words, I'm bored with it all. Jesus gives us four Aramaic words. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We open up our English Bibles, we turn to the Psalms, and you see Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, all the way to Psalm 150. In Jesus' day, they didn't have the Psalms numbered like that, so the way that a person in oral culture would know the Psalm, it would be the first lines of the Psalm. So when Jesus upon the cross utters, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Jewish people of the day would have heard that. That's Psalm, what we know to be Psalm 22. It's a song of lament of David that ends in victory. It's a psalm where David in that moment is experiencing just utter desolation. He feels as if he's forgotten by God, but it ends with this high point, this exclamation point of deliverance. It very well may be that Jesus in this moment, as he's quoting this, he has the entirety of the psalm in mind, knowing that his resurrection is right around the corner. But in this moment, when Jesus utters Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very message of the cross is coming forth to all of us who would have ears to listen. Hear me say this. Even the bystanders knew that there was something about Jesus that was different. The centurion knew it. There are others that begin to whisper, maybe this is Maybe Elijah will come to get him. There's something about his crucifixion that people begin to realize that he had a control over. And with just an utter of his voice, he could have called a legion of angels to come and to wipe out all of the Roman army. The nails did not hold him to the cross. His love for you held him to the cross. His love for you held him to the cross. His love for me held him to the cross. His love for his father and obedience to his father's plan held him to the cross because it is upon this cross that he experienced the full weight of sin. Do you know the consequences of sin? They're twofold. The consequences are separation and their death. Think about the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they're kicked out of the garden. There are angels there to protect them from ever coming back into the garden. They cannot be in the place where there was unmediated relationship with God. They walked with God and they talked with God. But after they sinned, they cannot do that any longer. There is separation from a holy God. But then Adam and Eve experienced, because they were living in a place where they had access to the tree of life, so we can conjecture that they had access to be eternal. They would live forever connected to the tree of of life. They don't have access to that. Adam and Eve, they would die, and so we die. We experience the consequences of sin, because when we sin, which we've all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God, it separates us from a holy God. You realize this because it separates you from humans. You, when you sin against somebody, there is a breach in the relationship. When you, when you lie to a parent and they find you out, there's a breach in that relationship. You can feel it. When you lie to a spouse or when you, when you sin against a spouse, there's a breach in that relationship. There's a separation in that relationship in that moment. We can feel that, but think about that. Transpose to an eternally holy God who is perfect in all of his qualities. 
So our sin, it separates us from him. It leads to our death. And so when Jesus upon the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing upon the cross what are the consequences of our sin, separation, and then ultimately death. He, the eternal Son of God, has never been apart from his Father. He's always been in a loving relationship. So it's in this moment upon the cross where the full penalty of sin is placed upon him. Every sin of all of humanity is laid upon him upon the cross. And he drinks the separation, and he ultimately drinks death. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reminds us, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus experienced the effects of sin as he was separated from his father, as he drinks the full consequences of sin and ultimately breathes his last breath, he does this, as 2 Corinthians 5, 19 reminds us, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to him, not counting their trespasses against them. So the cross is this glorious reminder that Jesus died in your place. He died in my place. He experiences the consequences that you and I deserve to experience. And because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is an invitation for us to realize that when we put our trust in Jesus, we do not have to eternally experience the consequence of separation and death. Because why? He has experienced it fully on the cross and has victoriously defeated it through his resurrection. There's this wonderful Puritan prayer in a book called The Valley of the Vision that just crystallizes the the glory and, and the agony of the cross. The irony of the cross is that Christ, you experienced all anguish that we might receive all joy. You were cast off that we might be brought in. You were trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as friends. You surrendered to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best. Stripped that we might be clothed, wounded, that we might be healed, a thirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made a shame that we might inherit glory, inner darkness that we might have eternal life, wept that all tears might be wiped from our eyes, groaned that we might have endless song, endured all pain that we might have unfading health. He bore a thorny crown that we might have a glory diadem. He experienced reproach that we might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that we might gaze on unclouded brightness. He expired that we might forever live. died on the cross not because the injustice of this world got the best of him he died upon the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have 
everlasting life. And we must do something with this message. There is an invitation that's implicit to this message. There's a response. It's not enough for us just to say, okay, good story. It demands a response. It demands a decision. It demands you saying, well, there's only one or another place I can be. I can either realize that this is true, that I'm a sinner and my sin separates me from a holy God and there are consequences for my sin and I can realize that and say, I'll deal with it then. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try to do enough nice things because all of us know that we sin. I don't have to convince you of that. All of us know that death is before us. I don't have to convince you of that. The question is, have you trusted the only solution to your sin and to death that is before us. Have you realized that you're a sinner and trusted in Jesus as your Savior? When I was a teenager, I started walking down to a church. I walked to the church because it was just right down from the middle school. I could play basketball in their gym. I had friends of mine that attended there. And as a young teenager, I came to that church and began to hear the Bible taught. I began to hear that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I, I didn't have the background to quite understand what that meant. I, I thought that being a Christian was just sort of being an okay person. And as long as I wasn't a really, really, really bad person, that everything would work itself out. But the more I listened to the teaching of the Bible, the more I got to know these people and see the love of Christ through these adults and even some of my contemporaries, I could see that Jesus had done something and meant something to their life. I would hear people talk about how they trusted Jesus as their Savior, but it was just so foreign to me. I, I didn't understand what that even meant until I did. For me, as a teenager, really the only thing that really mattered to me was sports and my friends. I mean, I placed a lot of value upon those things. I sort of found a little bit of identity. I found a sense of success until I didn't. I remember coming home one night and having as much of an existential crisis that I could as a teenager. Everything that was a crutch to me, everything that I was holding on to, it seemed to be away, and I seemed to, in that moment, wonder, what's the purpose? I had nothing but questions and questions, and nothing seemed settled. And I opened a Bible that had been given to me, and out fell this gospel track. It's a pamphlet, if you don't know what I'm talking about. At the front of it, it says, got questions? And, and I, I said, yes. I've got a lot of questions. And as I folded it out, with each fold, it shaped into a cross. And there, in my back bedroom, not knowing fancy theological words, not truly knowing what I was getting into, I realized that I was a sinner 
And I realized that the consequences of my sin were separation and death. And I realized that God loved me so much that he would send his son to die in my place. And with the words that I had in my head, I asked Jesus to save me from my sin. And life has just never been the same. Have I lived a perfect life? No. That's the whole point of the gospel. I can't. But has Jesus changed my life? Yes and yes and yes. And I ask you, has there been a time where you've admitted that you're a sinner, that your sin separates you from a holy God, and have you trusted in the only solution, the redeeming death and saving resurrection of Jesus? Have you believed in this glorious story, and have you committed your life to Jesus? Maybe today is that day for you. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? Can I talk to you for just a moment? You have to make a decision with the crucifixion of Jesus. And maybe here, for the first time, you have realized that your sin separates you from God, but that God in all of his love for you sent Jesus to be your savior. And I just want to invite you to pray to God in your own words saying, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I realize like I've never realized before that you sent your son to be my savior. I want to give you the opportunity just to talk to God now. In your own words, to ask Him to save you from your sin. Thank you, God, that there are many of us who can look back and know that we've trusted you as Savior. And your grace, it still amazes us. Thank you, God. Maybe there's someone here today that for the first time called out to you, saying, I believe, save me, a sinner your son, Jesus. Speak to our hearts, God, because we're listening this morning. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.